Romans 16, 17 to 19. This is what it says. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what you are, is good and innocent in what is evil. You know, back in 2002, Steven Spielberg released Catch Me If You Can, the movie which starred Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, tells the story of Frank Abernale, who has been billed as the greatest con man in American history. Now, the term con man is a shortened form of confidence man. A confidence man is one who cheats or tricks someone by gaining their trust and persuading them to believe something that is not true. And that's what Frank Abernale did. Now, he said his career started when he was 16, uh, when he uh, was brought into court because his parents were getting divorced. And because of his age, the judge asked him which one of his parents he wanted to go live with. He got upset by that question, and he bolted out the door. They recessed the court for 10 minutes, and when it came back together, he was gone. He said he didn't see his mom for the next seven years, and he never saw or spoke to his dad again after that. Well, the boy who was 16 years old, has a tough time making it on his own, but he said he went around looking for jobs. But what he found was that people don't want to hire 16-year-olds, or if they do, they don't want to pay him very much money. But he had something going for him, the fact that he looked like he was actually about 26. So he found a way to alter his, uh, his uh, uh, license that he had, and he started applying with, for jobs, telling him that he was that age. Now, he also decided that uh, being that age, he could go into banks and cash checks, personal checks, and uh, they did seldom asked him for ID because of his age. Well, he started uh, to pass bad checks and to write out checks for things he didn't have money for. And it ended up where the police were looking for him, but he decided he should probably leave town, so he decided he would go to another city. But which one? If he were to go to Chicago instead of New York or Miami or someplace, he would have even a tougher time cashing his checks because he wouldn't have an ID from that area. But then one day as he was walking past a hotel where there was an Eastern Airline uh, pilot and co-pilot who stepped out of the hotel, he got a bright idea. He thought, that's it. I'll pose as a pilot. I could travel all over the world for free and get checks cashed in any city I wanted to. So he decided to impersonate a Pan Am pilot. Now, pilots wear uniforms. How is he going to get one? Well, he called Pan Am office at the local airline and asked to speak to someone in the purchasing department. He told him that he was a pilot based out of San Francisco and that the dry cleaner had lost his uniform and he was wondering if it was possible to replace his uniform. Well, yes, you can, but you have to go down to the well-built uniform company on Fifth Avenue. There are suppliers. I'll call them to let you know that you're coming. Well, Frank explained to the man that he had never lost a uniform before, but the clerk reassured him, said it's pretty common for people to do that. They measured him. They found one that would fit him. And uh, when he went to pay, he said, is it all right if I pay you in a check? He said, no, we don't take checks. He said, actually, we don't take cash either. But if you put down your employee number, we'll bill Pan Am for the uniform, which is what he did. So he walked out with one. Well, this new sharp uniform, he headed down to uh, LaGuardia Airport, where he said he walked around for half a day trying to figure out how is it he would get on the plane. He realized that the uniform wouldn't do him any good unless he had an ID badge. So he went home, looked in the yellow pages for companies that made ID badges. Calling around, he found out that Polaroid made the ones for the airlines. So he went there pretending to be a purchasing agent for a company that wanted a new ID system. 
He said the company wants something like what they have for the airlines. Do you have any samples? Yes, we do. So we brought out one from United, another from Braniff, another from National. He said, do you have anything by Pan Am? We kind of like the way theirs looks. Yes, we do. He said, I was wondering, if, could I get a sample badge to bring back to my company to show? No problem. By the way, what's all this equipment here for? This uh, printer and the laminator. Oh, you have to buy that when you get the cards. Well, could you show me how it works? Matter of fact, can you take a picture of me just as, a, as an example? He walked out with a pilot identification badge. But the problem was, there were nowhere on the badge did it say Pan Am Airline. He was concerned about that, but then he walked by a hobby store and he saw planes in the window. He went in and said, do you have a, like a plane of like a Pan Am 747? He said, yes, we do. He said, bought one, brought it home. He went and opened the box. And in the bottom of the box, there were some decals, a clear decal that said Pan Am. He said he took it and put it across the top of his badge and he said it fit perfectly. Now he mentioned that as a matter of courtesy at that time, airlines allowed pilots from other airlines to ride on their planes for free. Usually they got to sit in the cockpit um, with a pilot and co-pilot. And that's what he started to do. He said from age 16 to 18, he flew over 260 flights over 26 countries and uh, logged more than a million miles in the air. But even with free uh, flights, pilots still need to eat and stay at hotels. And Frank Abenale found that almost any bank or hotel would take uh, cash, even payroll checks, from airline pilots in uniforms. And so he forged them. Concerned that he would eventually get caught, he decided to change occupations. He conned a hospital administrator into thinking that he was a doctor, and he was put on staff to oversee interns. He let them do the actual medical work, good thing, because he said he got sick from the sight of blood. He never went to law school, and yet he managed to pass the bar exam after a third time and get hired as a lawyer. Now, he was arrested in France, and he served time there, and then was extradited to Sweden, where he served another couple years. Finally, he was sent back to the United States, where he was sentenced to 12 years. But after four years' sentence, the United States government offered to release him if he would be willing to work with the FBI. He did so for the next 37 years. Now, Frank Abernale's story of how he managed to deceive people as he presented himself as something that he was not uh, is an amazing one. He recounts that story and has a number of times on The Tonight Show, 60 Minutes, TED Talks, and before live audiences across the country and the world. When he tells the story, it's with humor, and yet he never justifies his lying or his thefts. I suppose it's because his deception only involved stealing money from companies rather than from somebody's uh, bank accounts, or by violence, uh, most people who listen to him actually have a secret admiration for this con man. But what if, instead of swindling him out of money, a con man swindles you out of the truth? And what if what you lose is not your wealth, but your soul? In that case, no one would be, or should be, laughing. Well, here in this last chapter of Romans, after Paul gives greetings to a number of people in the church in Rome, suddenly he changes the su uh, subject by inserting a warning against false teachers who subvert the truth and lead believers astray. Well, because every believer should be on the lookout for false teachers, we want to consider what this section uh, has to tell us about our diligence in practicing spiritual surveillance. So why don't we pray and then get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. I pray that we would uh, know how to judge between true and false between counterfeit and real, that we may not be deceived in any way. Bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what do we see in the text? Three things I see. First of all, the commands Paul gives, that's verse 17, the commands Paul gives. Secondly, the reality that Paul knows, that's verse 18. And finally, the, church, uh, the need the church has, and that's verse 19. 
So the commands Paul gives, the reality Paul knows, and the need the church has. That first one, now I urge you, brethren, keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching that you learned and turn away from them. Now the word surveillance is defined as close observation, especially of a suspected spy or criminal. And I titled my sermon, Spiritual Surveillance, because the act, that's the activity that Paul is calling Christians to in the church in Rome. Now, surveillance can be either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on who's doing it and for what purpose. After the 911 terrorist attack on the World Trade Center, the United States passed what was called the Patriot Act. Did you know that's an acronym? P, provided, providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. Now, the appropriate tools that it authorized the government to use was tapping domestic and international phones, federal agencies being uh, more effectively able to use uh, available information and counterterrorism, increased penalties for terrorism and crimes, an expanded list of activities for which would, uh, terrorism could be applied. Now, the law was controversial because it authorized the government to do indefinite de uh, uh, detention without trial of immigrants, permissions given to the law enforcement to search property and records without a warrant, or without consent or knowledge. And since the passage, uh, several legal challenges have been mounted in federal court, and some of them have ruled part of it unconstitutional. You remember that theme song that opens up the series Cops? Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? But what happens when the government's not coming for the bad boys, but for the good guys? Edward Snowden, former employee for a subcontractor of the National Security Agency. Back in 2013, he leaked some highly classified information which disclosed that the NSA had set up numerous surveillance programs to spy on the American people with the help of Google and uh, Yahoo, reading their mails and tracking their personal data. Verizon had been providing millions of phone records as well. He revealed what was called the Black Budget, which is a $52 billion budget given to 13 different spy agencies of the United States. Is Snowden a traitor for revealing these things? Or is he a hero? I'll let you decide. Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. Every single day, every word you say, every game you play, every night you stay, I'll be watching you. Now, Paul is not asking the people in the church to set up surveillance cameras and to rat out uh, their uh, neighbors in the church, but he is asking them to keep a weary eye on those in the church who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching that they learned, uh, that they already learned. So the, the people of God have always been plagued, though, haven't they, by false teachers and conmen who subvert the truth and try to lead people astray. Peter, writing to his Reader said this, but false prophets arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them and bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their essentiality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. That's one of the reasons why Christianity is mocked so much. They say, oh, look at the hypocrites. Look at the false people. Look at all the troublemakers. It says, and then their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment is from long ago, it's not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Second Peter 2, 1 to 3. Jeremiah was a true prophet, remember him? But in his day, there were false prophets as well, claiming that they spoke for the Lord. 
So Jeremiah was telling the people to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar because that was God's will for them. No, a false prophet named Hananiah said this, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I've broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'm going to bring the, back uh, to this place the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took from this place and carried to Babylon. Now, who do you think the people believe? Jeremiah was giving them bad news? Or this false prophet, Hananiah, was telling what they wanted to hear? Folks, listen carefully. Most people would rather have a comforting lie than a hard truth. Well, God sent Jeremiah back to him. He had a message for that prophet. So then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. You've made these people to trust a lie. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you're going to die because you've counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died in the same year, in the seventh month. Evidently, God takes the issue of teaching or truth or error seriously. That's the way it was in Israel. It's the way it has been in the church. Jesus warned his disciples. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Now, what bad fruit did Paul point to in the lives of these people as evidence that they were spiritual hucksters, saboteurs, who were trying to undermine the church? He said, first of all, they caused dissensions and hindrances. I mean, you've heard that old adage, divide and conquer? Well, that's what the devil seeks to do through false teachers in the church. Now, the leaders of the Catholic Church in Lutheran's day, uh, Luther's day accused him of dividing and destroying the church. They said, Martin, you're a heretic and a schismatic, poisoning the purity of the church with your newfangled doctrines. Why, everything was peaceful and quiet until you came along. Now look at the violence, the division, the upheaval. You did all of this. And I have to tell you, Luther himself said that weighed heavily on his conscience. But then he said he realized it wasn't him stirring up these passions, but the word of God in the hearts of the people who opposed the truth. Sure, everything was peaceful and the devil's kingdom is quiet and people are sleeping their way to hell, but awaken them with the law of God and tell them that all their best religious activities are repugnant if they're not trusting in Christ. It's just self-righteousness. And tell them their only hope is Jesus faith in him as the payment for their sin and his righteousness imputed to our account. Tell them that and they will rage against you and your gospel. You see, faithful preaching brings unity and peace among God's people, but it also causes unbelievers to rail and to rage. False teachers, on the other hand, bring dissension into the church and hinder people from growing in their faith and then, and then they distort the gospel which packs people off to hell. Well, the first command that Paul gives is to keep away or keep an eye on these people. The second is to turn away from them. I mean, don't give these guys a hearing. Reminds me of a time I was preaching at a church when I was just starting out. It was a church down in southern Minnesota. I'd been preaching there a number of occasions. And uh, one time I was there, they brought me a brochure. They said, hey, we've got, somebody came by and they're putting on like a family conference and, and uh, it looks really good. We told them we were interested in it. We were just wondering if you know anything about this group. I looked it over. It was a nice, slick brochure, a lot of things about family values, conservative values, and all that. I said, um, down on the bottom here, it says the Unification Church. Yeah, that's the Moonies. They're a cult. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, the second thing that Paul tells us, though, is the reality that he knew, the reality Paul knows. You ever, heard, you ever have your kids come up to you and say, grandkids, and say, I know something you don't know. By the way, when I whisper that, doesn't that remind you of our president? 
I creep you out? <laughs> well, Paul knew something that they may not have known, and that was that these potential troublemakers in the church were not what they appeared to be. They were not servants of Christ. Look what he says. For such people are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. I mean, they, they look like the real thing. These false teachers can have moving testimonies about how they came to Christ. They can have advanced degrees in theology. They can pastor big churches and have international ministries. They can be featured conference speakers, authors of many books. They can be esteemed by the whole evangelical world and yet be among the false brethren that Paul warns against so often in the Bible. Jude warned against them as well. He said this in Jude 1, 3 to 4. He said this, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith once delivered over to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into a license to sin and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, he said this, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if those who are his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Peter Enns was a professor of Old Testament studies at Westminster Seminary, which is a conservative seminary. Seminary is a place where they train pastors. Well, back in 2005, Enns wrote a book entitled Evangelicals and the Problem of the Old Testament. In it, he called into question the idea of the inerrancy of Scripture, which is the official position of the seminary. Now, most of the professors there actually came to Enns' defense but the board of directors finally fired him for his views. As soon as he was fired, he started to write books about the scripture. You want to hear some of the titles of them? The Bible tells me so. Why defending the scripture has made us unable to read. Or this one. The sin of certainty. Why God desires our trust more than our correct beliefs. Or this one. How the Bible actually works. How an ancient, ambiguous, and diverse book leads us to wisdom rather than answers and why that's good news. Or how about Hank Hanegraaff? For years, he hosted a Christian call-in program. He was known as the, a Bible answer man. I believe my brother Jeff went and saw him one time. He wrote several books dealing with cults and heresies in the church. But back uh, in 2017, he shocked his viewers when he announced that he and his wife had just joined the Greek Orthodox Church. The Apostle John wrote about men like these when he said this, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. First John 2.19. So what I'm saying is don't assume that because a Christian leader is popular or has all the right credentials that he's a slave of Christ. In reality, they might be false believers who are slaves to their own appetites. They might be motivated by greed and lust. They might be doing ministry not for the glory of God, but for their own egos. And notice how it says they operate. By smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. One time, Winston Churchill was at a meeting. It was a social gathering. And someone pointed to somebody else, uh, uh, one of the minister, uh, members of, of parliament, and said, notice how he's chatting him up. Look at how he's flattering that guy. 
And Churchill said, yeah, that's not surprising. He said, the snake always covers its victim in saliva before he swallows it. That's what false teachers do. They tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to hear. They tell you how wonderful you are. Come on, we know better, don't we? Well, that brings us to our last point, though, the need the church has. Now, most of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches dealt with correcting bad theology and refuting false teaching. And in Corinth, they were denying a future resurrection. He had to deal with that. In Thessalonica, they needed to be straightened up on their understanding of last times. In Colossae, they got sucked into this Gnostic heresy with a mixture of certain Jewish practices. And in Galatia, Paul accused the Christians there of abandoning the true gospel and embracing a false one. But when he's writing to the Christians in Rome, they're actually pretty solid in their understanding. If you read through Romans, there's not a whole lot correcting false doctrine. Rather, he's just laying out the gospel that he preached and the implications for it in the lives of the believer and for the plan of God. And so in verse 18, he praises them again. He says this, For the report of your obedience has reached all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Now, they not only understood the truth of the gospel, but for the most part, they were living it out in their lives. I mean, there wasn't a big gap between what they were and what they proclaimed. I hope that's true of you as well. You know, when I, wife and I went to visit Jeff and Dina when they were in England, I remember when we got on the subway, there's this recording that always plays as you open the door. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. Well, the gap is that distance between the platform and the subway. And it's about like that. So you want to make sure you step over it, not into it. But a lot of times you can find people who are professed Christians who don't mind the gap. It seems not to bother them the disconnect between the lives they're leading and the truth they say they believe. You see, we can't walk in lockstep with the culture around us. We're supposed to be countercultural. I mean, you and I march to the beat of a different drum. And that's why Paul, earlier in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, said this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you might prove the will, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, Paul starts verse 18 with the word for, which means that he's giving a reason for what he said in verses 16 and 17. In those verses, he warns against false teachers. The reason he does not, or the reason he does not, is because, or the reason he does is not because this is a weak church, but because they're a strong church. What he's actually suggesting is the fact that they were a strong church makes them a bigger target for the devil. You know, I mean, if you're not doing anything, you're not preaching the gospel, the devil's not concerned about you. You're no threat to him. Well, Paul knows that they'll be targeted and that the false teachers, the minions of the devil, will be there to try to undermine them. And that's why he says, but I want you to be wise in that which is good and innocent in that which is evil. I mean, doesn't that sound similar to what Jesus told us? We're supposed to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves? And Jesus doesn't want us to be taken in by spiritual conmen. And that's why there's so many places where there's warnings against false teachers in the New Testament. The Bible tells us that we have to know these things ahead of time because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. You know, by the way, though, you don't have to be an expert on all these cults and false teaching. You just have to know what the truth is. I, I read somewhere that when, when they, uh, agents are trained to spot counterfeit dollars, uh, bills, they don't study all the counterfeits. They study the real thing. You just get a sense and a feel for what they look like. 
Well, Bereans search the scripture daily to see if what Paul said was true, and you should be doing the same thing when I'm teaching you or anyone else is teaching you. You know, the Jehovah Witnesses have great success drawing people from churches into their cult. You know, they go out on Sunday mornings because they figure if you're home on a Sunday morning, you're not likely to be a serious Christian. But the groups that they tend to pull from are Catholics, Lutherans, and Southern Baptists, people who don't know the scripture. Now, James Boyce is right. He said that we're supposed to be teaching people to think and act biblically, and that's what our church does. That's what the elders are committed to providing, clear and comprehensive teaching of the Bible. Pastor Christian and I preach through whole books of the Bible, verse by verse, and many of you have gone through God's grand design, which is an overview, about a five-year overview of the Scripture, tracing the narrative of the Scripture throughout it. My goal with that is that when you're done, you can pick up the Bible at any place, open it up, and know where you are in the text and how it fits into the overall scheme. We provide plenty of opportunities through Bible studies, Sunday school classes. We don't give you fluff. We give you the meat of the word, deep theology with questions regarding our faith. And we provide all of this. But the question I have is, how much of it do you avail yourself with? I mean, are you committed to learning the word of God as much as I am to teaching it to you? You know, the first law of teaching is the teacher must know the subject matter he intends to teach you. Have you ever had a teacher, like a substitute teacher, who doesn't actually know the, uh, the content of what he's teaching? You have to know it. But the second law is the student must attend with interest the matter being taught. It doesn't matter how well the teaching comes if you're not actually paying attention to it. Well, not only have to put yourself in a place where you hear the word of God, you have to put in effort to master what's being taught. Do people say that you're a diligent student of the word? You know, if you do that, your pastors are going to be very happy and rejoicing, just like Paul said he was, of the Romans. Now, I have to say, though, I think a tendency for people sitting here and listening probably over the Internet, a sermon like this is to say something like this to themselves secretly. Yeah, I'm sure there's people who get sucked into cults, fooled by false teaching, but I, I don't think I'm in that much of a danger because I'm not really a gullible person, and I think I know the Bible well enough to stand firm. Do you know the Bible better than that Peter ends, the seminary professor? He not only spent years getting his degree, he taught the scripture, and yet he went astray. Could you field questions if someone called into a program and you were the host, like the Bible answer man, Hank Hanegraaff? He had a lot of Bible knowledge in his head, but evidently it never got down to his heart. Peter was overconfident. Even though everybody else will fall away, Lord, Because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. Paul warned the Corinthians, if you think you stand, take heed, lest you fall. Peter said, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. By the way, that's what we're going to look at next week. The devil, his origin, his work, and his destiny. Now, I started with Frank Abernale. I want to end with him. He's been called the greatest con man of this country. Uh, He's still alive, by the way. He's 73 years old. That's why they made a movie about him. But you know, Frank Abernale was even a better con man than his admirers think. Because after a number of years of giving these speeches and being on The Tonight Show and places like that, some uh, journalists started to look into his claims. He evidently uh, did cash some checks as a pilot, but the total was something like $1,500, not $2.5 million. 
There's no record of him ever working at the hospital that he said he did. He said he supervised overnight. They never had a night shift like that. Uh, the prison that he said he escaped from never happened. In fact, most of what he said happened couldn't have happened because he was in prison during the time he said it happened. Was Frank Abernale the world's greatest con man? No, but he conned people into thinking he was, so perhaps he was. Here's what I'm telling you. Don't get conned by religious frauds. Know God's word so that you, too, practice spiritual surveillance. Because one of the things Jesus said was, get closer to the end, he said, that false prophets and false Christs are going to rise and the deception is going to be so great that, if possible, even the elect would be deceived. The elect cannot ultimately be deceived. But you can stumble because you believe false things. It's important that you learn the word of God, that you absorb the word of God, that it shapes your thinking so that you spiritually can discern what you're being told. May God give us the grace to do so because we're going to need it. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we do pray for grace and mercy. Uh, Jesus reserved his harshest criticisms for those who are false teachers who led people astray. He asked of the Pharisees how they thought they could ever escape the flames of hell. And he said, those who lead others astray, such men will be punished most severely. And considering he's the one who's going to dole out the punishment, that's a terrifying thought. Father God, I thank you for the truth that you've taught us in our church, that we're faithful in preaching it. That's a gift not from me to the church, but from you to the church and to me as well. We pray, Father and God, that we would be zealous and diligent in learning it. And as a result of it, we would uh, stand firm, whatever deception comes our way. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.